Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be here to sing such great hymns to Your mighty name. We recognize Your bountiful blessings to us and Your grace. And now we commemorate that grace in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The first thing I want to do is thank the Lord for the rain. Oh, man. Uh, I was driving to church this morning, and I've had my car about seven and a half, eight months, something like that. And I haven't even used the windshield wipers. I was trying to figure out how do you make these things work. So uh, we are so thankful. We need the rain, and God is always faithful to supply our needs. Let's see, uh, is there any announcements? Um, I don't think there, yes. This Wednesday? Okay. You know, I, I is it the, th- is, is the, okay, well I thought, okay. Uh, so next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday will be the Glory Be Girls. <laughs> Uh, we've got a bulletin. I don't think I've got that right yet. I thought I was going to have it right for sure this time because I thought, no, this isn't the day. Well, this is the week. So, Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of naming privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your mighty Word, for who and what You are, Your faithfulness, Your provision, that we never have to fear that You have forsaken us or that You don't know what's happening in our lives. We pray that You will help us this very morning to grow in grace and knowledge, that You will help us to plug into the message so that it will go deep into our souls, that it will change us to be more like Your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and open them to Joshua chapter 10, verse 25. Joshua 10, verse 35. I have to admit that I like verse 24 so much I didn't want to leave it. I want to just stay there. You'll remember that this portion of the Word shows God's faithfulness of how He delivered the Israelites over their enemies and to show a physical representation of that. He had the five kings that were the instigators of trying to wipe out uh, Gibeon, which the Israelites could not abide. And they were very fierce people. They were uh, greatly outnumbered, the Israelites. They had fortified cities. And yet now we have five of these kings 
kneeling down with their head to the ground and get Joshua has his commanders to come over there and put their foot on the neck of these commanders, of these kings rather. Now we've seen this in every possible angle. Well, not there probably are some other tangents we hadn't hit. But the whole idea is that we need to appreciate the fact God is on our side and He gives us the victory. That's what we want to take away from this verse 24. When we move into verse 25, Joshua then said to them, this is his military leaders, he says, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. That in itself is encouraging. But when you have the enemy bow down and your foot is on their neck, it has a deeper resonance. It is Joshua's way to show in a physical way that God was going to continue to give them the victory, just like he had given Moses the victory. He had given Joshua the victory. Joshua was an old man by now, and he's saying now, as this command goes to you, he's going to be faithful and deliver you from these enemies just as he had with us. Can you see that? what a wonderful representation that was? In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, Moses speaks these words to Joshua. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That's the thing over and over in the message of Joshua. Do not be afraid or be dismayed. Being dismayed would be someone who is full of worry and dread. Don't let dread take away your happiness. Most of the time people dread things and it never comes to pass anyway. But we have God on our side. Then in Joshua chapter 8 verse 1, God himself had spoke these words to Joshua to reinforce what Moses had already told him. He said, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or be dismayed. Same word over and over. And now in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, we have, uh, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That sounds much like Deuteronomy 31.8, but again, it's Moses encouraging Joshua. Joshua has experienced the faithfulness of the Lord, and now he's passing the same mindset on to his military commanders. In verse 25, we see that Joshua is speaking these same words to the people to help them trust the Lord. You know, I had a, a wonderful dad. He took me fishing. He took me hunting. When we went fishing, I, was, I guess I was about 10 years old at this time. It was, uh, <laughs> they didn't have fiberglass yet, so they had uh, wooden boats. This was down on the coast at San Leon. And they had ice chests, but they weren't, uh, again, the fiberglass. They were made out of cork. They had plywood and cork around them. And we would get in this old rickety boat, and the motor was the type that had, you would put a rope on top of the motor and put it around like this, and then you would pull it, kind of like you used to do the lawnmowers. And we would take off 
out into the what appeared to me to be the ocean. And when I was in that boat, and you you would think, well, this is uh, we have no cell phones. Uh, we have this old rickety motor that might and might not get us back. I never was afraid or dismayed because I was with my dad. And I knew that my dad was going to take care of me and I had nothing to fear. When we used to go uh, deer hunting, we would go out in the middle of the night to get on the stand because when the morning broke, you didn't want to scare him away. You'd already be there. And so we would be walking. I would be walking by him. Everywhere I went, it would be by him. And it was dark. And I was a city boy. I wasn't used to all the sounds at night in the forest. And so we would be walking over to our deer uh, blind and <clears throat> never a fear. I was right there with him. And he was, uh, he was so wise. It got to be uh, where I was getting older. I guess I was probably 12 or 13 by this time. And he would take me out and he would leave me in a stand by myself. And that was pretty scary. But this is what he did. He would go about 50 yards away, 50, 75 yards, something like that, and he was in a blind. So he could see me all the time. The scary part was until the sun came up because I was sitting in this deer blind and it was pitch black. I couldn't see anything. And he told me, though, he said, now I'm going to be right close to you. I'm going to have my eyes on you. I'm going to be able to be right there if you need anything. So you just sit here, and when it gets to be sunlight, you can look over there and see me. I said, okay. And it, during that uh, dark, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're 10 or 12 years old and you're sitting out in the woods for the first time when it's dark, it's amazing how much sound is there, all the noises that are going on. And I, I tell you what, I was squeezing tight to this gun. I don't know what I was going to shoot, but I was ready. And then when the day, daylight came, it, it was the dawn, I could look across over there, and he, he, you know, he, he was looking at me, and I said, Hi, Daddy! <laughs> you know, that's, what, that's all it is. It's just trusting that our Father is always there to take care of us. And we can trust Him. He will never, never leave us or forsake us. And we should not go along uh, through our life with foreboding and dread and worry. He's telling us, look, I've got it covered. I, I'm on your side. I'm all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving. Just relax and enjoy the ride. That's essentially what He was doing. And I can relate to that because I had such a wonderful dad. He would take me to all these places. And I didn't know where we were going. It didn't matter to me because I was with Him. I was going to enjoy myself and I wasn't going to be afraid. So that's essentially what Joshua is telling his, his leaders. Now, in verse 26, now I have to warn you, starting with verse 26 all the way to the end of the chapter, it's a little rough. It's a little tough of what the Bible is say, says is, is happening. And, uh, this is not stories. This, these are factual accounts. You can go to the places, all the cities that the Israelites took and you can see that they call them tells. They're mounds and they can dig down and it verifies what went on there. But it's, if, if you're squeamish, if you're um, I don't know what the word would be, but you, you, you have to put it in context. When you understand the context then it's okay. 
Verse 26. So afterward, after they had gone through this witch ritual, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. Well, this is not saying that he hung them with a noose. Um, he killed them with a sword, and then after they had died, they would hang them in the tree, and it was the same thing they would do with criminals. Now, the mode of execution for the Israelites was stoning to death. And when you, I've never seen anyone stoned to death, but I can imagine it's not a pretty sight, a bloody pulp. And they would take whatever's left of that body and they would hang it on the tree. Why were they hanging it on a tree? Is because they were trying to send a message. This is what happens if you break the law. The five kings that were so powerful that everybody feared now have been humiliated by having their enemy's foot on their neck. Then they were executed. Now they're hung up in the trees. And this is something that was done in those days. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, it says, And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on the tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you will surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hung on, hung on a tree is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives us, as an inheritance. All that was two verses, and it was showing the reason and the thinking behind hanging someone in a tree. They're already dead. Uh, I don't think they probably didn't hang them by the neck. Some, by some mode or fashion, they would hang them up on the tree. In uh, Joshua chapter 8, verse 29, it says, And he, Joshua, hung the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset Joshua gave the command that they should take his body down from the tree. They threw it at the entrance of the gate and raised over a great heap of stones that stands to this day. So this is something that was, was done. Now, I know today we are so sterilized, I guess you could say. We are so sanitized and so offended. Uh, we are so divorced from justice that a lot of people would disparage the Bible because these things happen. And it was part of the Mosaic Law that it was going to take place. In other words, God commanded these things to, to be done. But you have to realize this is justice in action, and it is a preventative. Capital punishment is what was being carried on. Now, we still have capital punishment in Texas, if you can call it that. Most states don't have it anymore, and that's, that's a shame because it's the capital punishment that puts the teeth in the law. If I think I can murder you, rape you, do a horrendous things and still get by with it with my life, it's not the same deterrent as if I know for certain if I'm found guilty, I'm executed, and it's not ten years from now. It's when they say uh, guilty, then you might have a day. I read just recently that they're not giving them last meals anymore. Have you all seen that? So that's about all they had to look forward to was a, a, a last meal. But what we have today is not really capital punishment. When you have uh, 10 or 12 years go by, 
and the state is paying for the um, upkeep of these criminals. But it was then. And the reason they're hanging them up is to give a message. Now we have injections, inject something in them, and nobody sees it except the family, very few, and so forth. If we were doing it biblically, it wouldn't be this little injection where they just go to sleep. It would be some kind of violent death, and it would be on TV for everyone to see. And, of course, mothers would think, Oh, my babies! What are they going to think? They might have nightmares. Well, good. They need to remember it. That's what it's about. That was the deterrent. They would bring little Johnny right by there. See here? This is what happens to the enemies of the Lord. This is what happens if you murder someone. This is what happens if you rape someone. It's burned into the brain of little Johnny and he won't forget it. That's the idea. How does, this, how does this relate to our salvation, by the way? Who else was hung on a tree? Jesus Christ was cursed in our place. He took the punishment that we should have taken. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's Galatians 3.13. Voluntarily, he took the sins of the entire world upon himself and was cursed, humiliated, tortured, degraded, and experienced the worst suffering that anyone ever had when God the Father imputed our sins upon him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You know, that's a good one to memorize. That's one of the, that's, I knew there was something that I was going to say when I started today and I couldn't remember it. I just remembered it. Are you all taking those memory verses and memorizing them? Or are you just looking at them and saying, hmm, that's interesting and moving on? Hmm? We have four so far. And the purpose of them being on the front of your bulletin. I hope you all read the bulletin. I hope we're not just printing those for people to fan themselves with. Um, you need to learn those verses because they are the ones that will undo the idea that a person has to work for salvation. At least these are salvation verses that you should carry around in your soul because most of the people you're going to come in contact with think, that you have to work your way to heaven. And I've said it over and over again. In fact, I think I might be putting this on the website shortly. When you tell someone you don't have to be good to go to heaven, it's somewhat of a shock. But you need to follow that up and say you don't have to be good. You have to be perfect. Only one was perfect. They know they're not perfect, so that helps lead them to the solution which is Christ's atonement for us on the cross. So this is something that was done that was not so horrible back in that day. It was a teaching aid. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. What I'm doing is giving you some background 
for you to prepare yourself for this, the rest of this chapter because the rest of this chapter is pretty grisly. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 9. Now this is instructions that God is giving the people, these same ones that have entered the land with Joshua. In verse 9 he says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. Those nations are referring to these five kings and the nations that they had in Canaan. When it says detestable, it means unbelievably wicked. We're not talking about people who were bad. We're not talking about people who were immoral. We're talking about the height of wickedness and degeneracy. We're talking about people who were saturated in their soul with demonic influence. Keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the chapter. Verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire. Now, what that's talking about is they were so... There was so much iniquity there that they would sacrifice their children to the idol god Moloch. And the, the mode of killing their own children was burning them upon the altar was one of the things they were they would do he says so don't you do this don't let your daughters or sons go through the fire one who uses divination divination is um, an occultic practice divination is supposedly conjuring someone up from the dead and that uh, you have psychics and you have all these people that from palm readers on down, and you have people that say, "Let's have a séance and we'll uh, you can talk to those who have already uh, died, maybe some of your family members." That is a bunch of balderdash. You stay away from it. That's what divination is. It's it's a bunch of demons that are trying to uh, con you into thinking that you're talking to someone who has already passed. To my knowledge, there's only been one true seance, if you want to call it that, and that's when uh, God sent um, Samuel back when Saul was entreating the witch of Endor to tell him what was going to happen. He wanted to talk to Samuel. and That was a hoot because you had the witch of Endor. She know, knew that it was all just a sham. Nobody's really going to come up. She'd activate the demons. They would throw their voice into sounding like Samuel. I guess Saul had never gone to a seance before because when Samuel actually came up, God brought him up. The witch of Endor was freaking out. She didn't know what to do. This didn't know how it was supposed to go. And Saul was just standing there thinking, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is how it happened. Anyway, divination is demonic. One who practices witchcraft or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. All of these uh, fortune tellers and all this uh, tarot cards tarot cards and crystal balls and reading your palm and all this bunch of... Uh, all it is is based in demonic things. And if you have a Ouija board, get rid of it. 
Oh, it's just a game. It's not just a game. What business have you going to a Ouija board to get the future when you have a Bible? Or you should have a Bible in your house. I'm trying to read you if any of y'all have any Ouija boards or not. I can't tell. No, no, I don't see anybody vibrating. But if God is telling them, don't, do, don't, don't get into divination or witchcraft or interpret omens or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead, if He's telling them that to them, then... Do y'all, by the way, do you all know what a Ouija board is? Everybody knows that? When I was a kid, it was really, you know, we'd get in the closet and do the Ouija board. This cast a spell would be like voodoo. You know, we don't have all that so much in this country. At least it's not on the surface. It's there. Well, you go into some of these countries and they are steeped in it. Not just suspicious and, and having these um, superstitions. It's out-and-out out demonic activity. Voodoo. Well, I'll move on. I got a good. I have a good saying about voodoo, and it rhymes, but I can't do it. <laughs> or one that casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. That's what I want you to keep in your mind, because Joshua is about to get cranked up and he's going to go from city to city and he's going to kill everything that breathes on God's commands and it is the just and right thing to do. So keep that in mind as we start to go away from verse 26. We already have five kings that are executed and hung up on the um, trees. So don't feel sorry for these people. God gave them over 400 years to come around and all they did was get more and more decadent and now it's time for the hammer to fall and God is using Joshua to do it. Verse 27. Get back to Joshua. Joshua 10. We just finished verse 26. In verse 27, And it came about at sunset that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the tree, threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. So the very cave that they hid in in order to uh, avoid the wrath of God becomes their tomb. And I want you to underline something in this verse. This part. And put large stones over the mouth of the cave. Large stones. What, what's going on here with the stones? Y'all remember what the Israelites did every time something happened? What are they doing? Oh, they're picking up stones. And they're, they're, what, what happened when they crossed the Jordan? Do you remember? They got stones out of the river and they put a monument up on the, on the bank and they took stones and they put a monument in the middle of the river. They, they're stacking stones. And then they go to uh, Jericho. And what do they have there? Stone walls. 
Uh, the, the Israelites didn't have any battering rams or ramps or any of these things. Uh, how are they going to be able to defeat a fortified city like that? Well, they blew horns. God said, blow horns. They said, what? He said, blow horns. So they blew horns. They were obedient. The walls fell. And so they left what behind? A big stack of stones, didn't they? And then they went to Ai and uh, they got kind of arrogant and they got whipped had the, with their tail between their legs. They, they go back and then they get right with God. They go back to Ai and they take care of Ai. Uh, they destroy that. And what happened at uh, Ai? Well, it says in verse 27 of... Um, well, it's not verse... In 27, it's talking about this. Uh, the king of Ai was hung before the people, and after before, before it gets dark, they took his body down. He was buried at the gate of the city, and what did they do? Piled a bunch of stones on top of that. The, the stone, everywhere you go, you're, you're seeing uh, stones. Um, what happened when Achan, remember Achan? He couldn't resist. He had to steal a little something. Uh, God said, don't take anything from this city. This city is dedicated to me. Don't take a spoon. And he got some, he got some uh, uh, gold and a little, some clothes and so forth. And so uh, what was left on top of Achan's body after he was executed? Stones, again, a heap of stones. Uh, what happened when the Israelites were chasing the enemy all, all over the place, what was falling from heaven? Stones. Who were they hitting? The enemy and only the enemy. So there's stones all over the place. And now we have these kings. They're thrown into this uh, cave where they were before. And so they put stones. So what is God doing? Why? Are there these piles and monuments and stones all over the place? And God has them do this. And the reason is because He's leaving a, a historical memorial behind that links God with the actions that are taking place at that time. It's a physical reminder of what took place then. Now, we're so fortunate because we have the Bible. We don't have to go around and say, uh, well, God did this. Let's go see the stack of stones somewhere. We can just read it, and it gives us... This is our memorial, and I'm telling you, this Word is going to last than those stones did. What's going to happen to those stones eventually? They're going to burn up, aren't they? When God makes a new heavens and new earth, everything that you see, every, everything physical is going to burn up, and so it's the Word that lasts anyway. Now, as we get to verse... As we get to verse, uh, we're looking at verse uh, 27. We want to note that there are five kings that were executed and that was uh, the main players in this whole thing. And I need to get a map up. Let me get a map up here. Maps are very important to understand what's going on. Here is... Uh, a map of that area. Well, wow, that's not very big. Huh. Well, anyway, this is uh, Gilgal where they were camped. This is Jericho. 
This is the route that they took. And remember, they had them on the run all the way to here. And when they got over here, uh, close to Makeda right here, uh, Joshua asked the Lord, uh, can you just stop the sun? I need more light. And he did that. And uh, we, we, there's a whole lot of things that was happening here. But on this map, I don't know if you can see from here, but this is the rugged terrain area. You see where it's all craggy looking here? These are the mountains and so forth. And then you have Jerusalem. Now, out of these five uh, cities, Jerusalem is the only one that's not touched. It's for a purpose. It's not going to be taken. Uh, that's saved for David, which he's going to do about 400 years after all this took place. It's a special place, and God reserved that for David to take. And these are outlying cities. Uh, you have Hebron, uh, Makeda, Lachish, Derby. Uh, no, this is uh, Eglon, Lachish, and this is Libna. All these towns are mentioned in this last uh, part of the chapter. And what when you have big armies, especially from Egypt, Egypt is down here, Jerusalem is a surprise. These are actually outpost cities. When you have big, uh, big armies, they just couldn't go across this rough terrain. There were passes, passages and so forth where they would have to move. And that's where they put these cities. What I'm telling you, these cities were outposts to protect Jerusalem. Before you could get to Jerusalem, if you were coming up from Egypt, you had to pass these uh, fortress cities before you did it. So that's where they're going to start going into uh, cleaning house in that area. Here's another, another look at it. Here is Jerusalem here, and here's the cities. Of course, Egypt is back down this way. Okay, so he's, they're about to take off, and they're going to do some house cleaning all around there. And we're going to see that when the Lord does something, He does it right. He doesn't do it halfway. And when He's going to rout out these pagans, He's certainly going to, uh, to do a good job of it. But what I, this is one point I want you to recognize. What did the Lord tell Joshua to do? He said, I want you to meditate upon My Word day and night. You remember that? The reason that Joshua is so successful is because he's being obedient to the Lord. The Lord is doing all the fighting. Well, he's, he's, uh, the men are out there fighting, but he's the one that's giving them the victory. And here's the principle. Uh, as one pagan stronghold after another fell before him, God turned blessings, uh, excuse me, cursing to blessing because Joshua was faithful. You see what I'm saying? If you can, I'm going to bring this all together if I have time to show you how this applies to today. We're not just looking at a history lesson. The things that took place then are relevant for us and we need to make those applications. We have, uh, as it were, Canaanites all around us. We live in a very decadent society, a very... Um, non-Christian society, a very arrogant society. And we have to do battle every day. And the way that we are going to be able to be successful, just like Joshua was, was by doing the same thing. What did he do? He meditated upon God's Word day and night. You know, when we learn doctrine, when we learn these things, it's not that, well, we learned that 
got that checked off and you leave and you forget about it. You need to think about these things all the time. What we're focusing on now more than anything else is the faithfulness of God. You can trust Him. He's giving you the victory. Now it's time for you to start putting that into shoe leather and actually thinking doctrine and applying doctrine and God gives us the victory. That's the idea behind it. Now verse 28. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its kings with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. What did he do to the king of Jericho? He slaughtered him. I mean, he, he used, killed him with the sword. He was hung up and then they put rocks over him. That's what happened to Makeda as well. Makeda in the Hebrew means place of shepherds. There's an uh, uh, archaeologist named Condor, and he identified it with the modern El Mogar Tel, 25 north, uh, miles northwest of Jerusalem, where are two caves large enough to contain five men each. So right in that place where they found it, they have the uh, record of the caves being there where Makeda was. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, the next, next verse 29. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel. And he struck it with every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivors in it. Thus he did to its king just as he has done to the king of Jericho. These, 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 we're going to see these, all these decadent, ghastly pagan cities with all their demonism are going to be falling like dominoes. And so he's doing the same thing to uh, Libna. Now Libna means white. The reason it was white, uh, called white, was because it was heavily fortified uh, position on a limestone cliff. Limestone kind of looks white, so it was called Libna. It was one of the royal cities of, of the Canaanites. It became one of the Levitical towns in the tribe of Judah, and it was strongly fortified. The Syrian king Sennacherib turned to Libna after the siege of Lachish in 701 B.C., and this is given in 2 Kings 19.8 and Isaiah 37.8. Now, we're going to see... I've got several PowerPoints I want to show you now that we're going to go to Lachish next. We're in verse uh, 30. Uh, and now verse 31. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Libna to Lachish, and they camped by it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel. And he captured it on the second day. Underline second day. I'm going to show you why that's important. He captured it on the second day and struck it. And every person who was in it with the sword, edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Now let's go back to the, to the uh, 
map. Just a second, I want to show you something. I'm sorry, I thought this map was going to be bigger and it looks pretty puny. I'm, I must not, uh, but you can still get the idea. Here is, here is Libna. He was, they think that Makeda was here. I've seen Makeda put over here at, at, in, on some maps. They're not exactly sure where it was. That's the first place that he went to after he killed the king, the five kings, and he took Makeda. Then he went to Lebna. Then he goes to Lachish. Then he's going to go to Eglon. Then he's going to go over here to Hebron. And then he's going to go to Debir. He's just going from one town to the next, and he is wiping them out. Now, the reason I said it's important to note about um, Lachish being taken in two days is because Lachish was a very strong fortified city. This is a, a map of how it was fortified. You'll see on the next slide how it was um, hard to get to. This is the center of the town here. These are revetment wa uh, walls. That means they're supported all around it. And we're going to see that it, was, uh, it goes up like this to get to the city. This is another rendering of uh, Lachish. You see how the, it had double walls. It had one here, it had one here, and it's up real high. You have to go up like high like this, and here it is. Now, this is a drawing of Lachish, a walled city of the southern kingdom of Judah, which was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 B.C. But before that, in 701 B.C., you have Sennacherib coming, and he is... Uh, trying to take Libna, and both uh, Sennacherib, which was Assyrian, and Nebuchadnezzar, which was Babylonian, both of them lost thousands and thousands of troops trying to take this city. And it took a long time. That's why I had you underline the second day. The Israelites took this city by the second day. Well, how could they do that? Who was on their side? Now, the Lord was on their side. That's why. Um... This is a relief. Uh, when Sennacherib took this, uh, he was a big, no, no doubt, blowhard, uh, big mouth king. And he was very proud of what he had done. And so this is a relief that is in, is in his palace uh, in Nineveh, which is in northern Iraq. And this is in the British Museum. You can see this. A relief is just a stone wall where they carve things into it. Uh, can you kill these lights overhead for just a second, George? They can see it better. Uh, and here, here you have uh, people leaving Lachish. He's on a donkey. And this is the people uh, going away from the city. This rough background shows that it's, they're going through a forest. Here's another. Now, these were all in his palace, which is located now in uh, Iraq, where he is going back and he's talking about all the great feats and people that he had uh, conquered, and it's in his palace, these reliefs like this. Here's, here's some guy here that uh, these guys are fanning the king, and he's up there. This looks like some kind of arrow. Uh, the next one gives us some, uh, a, a better account of what's happening. I'll get back to that one. Ooh, you can't hardly see this one. But this uh, says, This relief was excavated from Sennacherib's palace at Nineveh. Shows three prisoners of war playing... Liars, kind of like harps, while being led away by our soldiers. Can you see them here? Here's the harps. Here's the soldier. 
this background here is meant to depict the woods that surround them. The detail of the Hebrew captives playing music from, uh, from, or from Lachish, that's the town we're talking about, wandering through a mountain forest accompanied by a Syrian warrior carrying a club and a quiver. Here he is. You know, he would beat them every once in a while. If they didn't stay in step, they weren't going fast enough or whatever. Uh, they are wearing shirts and are barefoot. One has no hat. The other uh, wears a cap with headbands. This is just describing these in the relief. Here's the one I like best. If I can get to it. Uh, uh, nope. Uh, you got to look fast. <laughs> this was doing t- this to me this morning. I thought I had it cured. Let's see. Maybe I can go back. Uh, hold on. Are y'all seeing that? Good. Oh, y'all killed that over there. I don't want y'all to go blind. Okay, I can show it to you this way. Hold on a minute. All this newfangled technology is great when it works. How do I get out of here now? There. Okay, we'll go up this way. I'll show it to you this way. Okay. Here is the relief here. Sorry, the way it is, but it's the only way I can get it up right now. Here is the people leaving Lachish. These guys here, these, these people are laid out here. You see these two guys here? Uh, you know what they're doing to these guys? Filleting them. They would skin them alive. They're, they're prisoners. So this is, I know that would get you. <laughs> But that was showing what they did. The, the Assyrians were unbelievably... They would make the Apaches look like Girl Scouts. They would, they would love to skin their uh, victims alive, their enemies, and then they would bet on how long they could live, and when they, especially when they would pour salt on them after they had to skin them. Anyway, uh, these are, this are the reliefs from Sennacherib. Now, this is, what, this is so neat what I'm going to give you next. Are y'all ready for something really neat? After all, I told you it was gory. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. Let me get to the scriptures here. All right. Um, there is one thing that are that's not showing on those reliefs. I've got to find my glasses. Did I stick them in a boot? Oh, here they are. Okay. Um, what, what he didn't show on those reliefs was the fact, and this account is given in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, is that later on, this same... Uh, place, uh, the same king is going to go against Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. He was the king of Judah. And after he left Lachish, 
he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to do the same thing to Jerusalem that he did to Lachish and Libna, where he had all these reliefs that he was bragging about. This is just a big bragamony that he has in the palace about what he's doing. But what he does not have there is what happened in Jerusalem. Do you know what happened in Jerusalem? Hezekiah trusted the Lord. His forces, uh, uh, Sennacherib's forces were all around. And the Lord killed in one night 185,000 of the Assyrians. That you can't find on the reliefs. I wonder why. 185,000 that the Lord killed. By the way, that is in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35. You see... He had threatened, uh, threatened Hezekiah and demeaned the Lord himself. The Rob Shaka said, I'll give you, uh, I don't know how many thousands of horses it was for you to fight us if you had enough men to, to ride them. It was his way of putting them down, and, and it looked like all was lost. There's no way that you can do it. And Hezekiah went to the Lord humbled himself, and the people did, and the Lord took care of it. And the next day, he told Hezekiah, you and the people go out. Don't worry about taking your weapons. And they were thinking, what? <laughs> and they went out, and they saw 185,000 that had been slaughtered by our Lord. I don't know about you, but I like that. That our Lord can... can uh, Here's something I wanted to show you also with these, with these uh, different cities. This is Haley's Bible Handbook. And on page 163, it has an archaeological note. Can I get the lights back on, please, George? Thank you. It says, Lachish, Debir, and Libna are named among the cities destroyed in uh, Joshua chapter 10. It says, Lachish, the was the, um, the Welcome Archaeological, Archaeological Expedition, that was the name of it, was the Welcome Expedition, found there a great layer of ashes coinciding with Joshua's time. De Beer, which was, I showed you on the map a minute ago, and we'll get to it on, in our scriptures here. De Beer uh, also had a joint expedition of uh, Zena Seminary and American School of Jerusalem found deep layer of ashes, charcoal, and lime. Listen to this, which indicates, which with indications of a terrible fire and cultural marks of Joshua's time. Everything under was Canaanite. Everything above was Israelite. You hear that? We have got archaeological evidence that what we're reading in Joshua took place. That's what's as if we need more evidence. But I want you to understand this is not, we're not reading stories. We're reading actual accounts. These things happen exactly as they are told. And when these archaeological uh, archaeologists go to these tells and they dig down and they see the culture of Canaanites from here down, then you have all these ashes where they burn the city and from there up, Nothing but Israelite culture. The stones are crying out that the Lord, He is God. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. Uh, well, I guess I'm going to, we're not going to get to Eglon today. Have you all ever heard of Eglon? 
means the young bull. It was in the low country, situated seven miles from Lakish. Uh, let me draw something. Let's, I'm, I'm out of time. We'll have to throw the anchor out here. But next time we're going to get to, after we just finished Lakish, something happens. You got Horm, king of Gezer, comes up from, how about that? He was an old geezer from Gezer. This old geezer comes up, and he's going to try to uh, help Lachish against the Israelites. Of course, he gets wiped out. And then we're going to go to those other towns, and we're going to bring this to uh, a conclusion, at least this chapter. And I have to wait until that time to give you how this all applies to us, because there is a connection. You don't come to Country Bible Church and hear Joshua just to get a history lesson. This is history, but there is application. It is given in the Word for a purpose. I'll make that connection next time. I'd like everyone please to bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're here and you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't settled that issue, this would be a good time to do it. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He went to the cross and died for your sins. He was buried, resurrected on the third day, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. It would be a scary thing to try to, to face all of the exigencies of this world alone without having God on our side. It would be even more frightening to face eternity without God. You can settle it right now simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to raise your hand walk an aisle. You do it in your soul. That's where the real life is anyway. And by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him and His work rather than your own, and you're born again and you're on your way. Now, Father, thank You for this time You've given us to focus on these things that happen that are so meaningful to us when we slow down, we recognize the main point that we can trust You for You are faithful. We thank You for this and pray it in Christ's name. Amen.